Faith is a well-known foundation for the Christian life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, from Hebrews. When I was a younger Christian, there was a saying that went around that said, don't pray for faith because you're going to just get trials in your life. We'll see today that this is not the right attitude. It's wrong approach. Faith not only is fundamental to our relationship with God, it's needed for our walk and even for our well-being. I pray that through this passage, God will open our hearts to earnestly seek from Him an increase in our faith. But first, let's do a little review. Recall from last week, Bren was speaking with us. Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration. He had with him three disciples, Peter, James, and James's brother, John. Not the 12, not 120, not these vast crowds that have been following him around three specific disciples. They were not alone. There was also Moses and Elijah. And then there was a father's voice that came to them all, saying, this is my beloved son, confirming that Jesus was his son. And he said, listen to him. Pay attention. So, Maybe we should pay attention, special attention that Jesus and these three, plus the Moses and Elijah, let's pay attention to that. Give special directions that they should listen to him. Why is that? Well, it's obvious that Jesus being God's son, he would have special insight, but Jesus is starting to go in a different direction in his ministry. He's still going to preach. He's still going to heal. But he is going to start speaking to the disciples, preparing them for when he's gone. And we see that starting even today. We pick up the narrative in Mark 9. It's on page 844 if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles. We'll be looking at chapter 9, Verses 9 through 29. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, 
and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This week, we see two stories. Jesus coming down from the mountain, and we see Jesus healing the boy with a demon. Apparently, I am the elder who is designated to preach about demon exorcism. I don't see anybody else getting these passages, but that's okay. And I'm sorry, there's no map for you this week. We're just going to have to go with God's Word, but that's okay. So let's start with the descent from the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 9, we read, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, 
as it is written of him. First thing, he tells them, don't tell anybody. Tell no one. This is not unusual. We've seen him do this many times before. For several chapters now, he's been seeking time alone with prayer, for prayer, and it's been increasingly difficult as the crowds have been mobbing him. They've been following him. He didn't want to increase that difficulty, so oftentimes he told people, don't tell them. But there's a new aspect here. As I mentioned before, he is going to start increasing his teaching of the disciples specifically about what's going to happen during his passion, his death, his resurrection and ascension, and what they should be doing during that time and after it. So it starts here. This is where he starts telling them, be quiet until the Son of Man has risen. Now, Son of Man, huh, who is the Son of Man? They are fresh from the Father, hearing the Father saying, this is my Son, listen to Him. So they're clear on that part. But I would say that the Son of Man, they knew who they were talking about. If we turn to Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. Daniel's speaking here. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who does this sound like? Sounds like Jesus to me. And they would have been familiar with this. As they, young boys, went to Hebrew school, they would have heard this prophecy. I don't think they were confused at what the Son of Man was. But this rising from the dead stumped them. It's clear to us in hindsight, right? Is talking about Jesus' resurrection. But let's step back a little bit. They're on the mountain. The Father says He is the Son of God, and they come down the mountain, and Jesus says, The Son of Man. That's clearly in their minds the Messiah. But the disciples didn't really have a correct understanding at that point of what the Messiah was. The Messiah rescues Israel. We see it in the Daniel passage. It plays right into that oust the hated Romans paradigm that the Jews were expecting. Let's get rid of these temporal rulers, and so then we can do what we want. That is not what Jesus was about, and the Son of Man was not Jesus' only title. They weren't thinking about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They weren't thinking about the Rose of Sharon. There were many other titles that speak to Jesus coming, to living, to dying a sacrificial death for our sins. They weren't thinking about that. They didn't quite understand, and in fact, 
we'll see even up to the week of his crucifixion and beyond, it took them a while to really get the concept of what this dying for their sins meant, what this Messiah title meant. So, they're pondering this, and what's their question? Why did the scribes, the keepers and interpreters of the law, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come prior to the Messiah? That is to say, speaking of the Son of Man, i.e. the Messiah, we're having a little trouble reconciling your timeline. You are the Messiah, but the scribes, the ones with access to the Scriptures, tell us Elijah must return before that happens. If you pull out your bulletin, you will see on the front Malachi 4, 5 through 6. This is a, another verse that they would have been familiar with. Malachi is the last, last book in the Old Testament, right before the 400 years of silence. And that says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If we look in the Matthew passage, we'll see a little bit more information, but it's clear to the disciples that Jesus is talking to them about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was this fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy with his message of repentance and preparation, ending with John's death, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. The prophecy has been fulfilled as John's ministry ended, just as Jesus' ministry started. Have you ever been on a retreat or some other mountaintop experience? You get away from things, and it's so peaceful, and just wish you could stay there, maybe commune with God, maybe just escape the pressures of your life. And then you return to real life just to have all the joy sucked out of you like a deflated balloon. Yeah, I can see by your faces many of you can relate with that. This is, in fact, where we get the term mountaintop experience, this Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus comes down. If you can relate with that, then you can relate with what comes next. Reading in verse 14, And when they, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Jesus and the three descend. What do they find? They find the nine disciples. They find a crowd. They find scribes and an argument going on. Recognizing Jesus, they all ran up to him, almost like a mob. And what's Jesus' question? What are you arguing about? He knew. 
He knew. But Jesus often uses questions to teach, to make a point, to emphasize the truth. The answer is given by the Father, which we read starting in verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were arguing about the same old thing. By the context, we can see that the scribes were saying, your master, Jesus, supposedly gave you powers, and you can't heal. Therefore, your master and you are not from God. You guys falsely represent God. You are sinful. We've seen that argument over and over again as we studied Mark. Here it is again. This is clarified by Jesus' response, which is a rebuke. In 19, he says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You can almost hear a disappointed sigh. Must I continue to teach and explain, to show? The time is short, yet you do not believe. You do not believe. Fine. Bring him to me. He gave affirmation and instructions to listen to Jesus immediately prior to this on the mountain. God the Father gave instructions. Listen to Jesus. This is in stark contrast to what he's seeing now. No one's listening. I mean, they're listening, but they don't get it. They're not understanding. But so far, no one has really asked Jesus to do anything. Jesus calls for the boy as an extension of his rebuke to the scribes. This is a teaching moment. Have you learned nothing? Let me put to rest your baseless arguments and show you once again what I am about. And they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. They bring the boy, and similar to previous encounters, demonics react when they see Jesus. The boy is convulsed. Jesus then asks another question to which he knows the answer. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father is desperate. You can feel it in his words. The life of his beloved son is repeatedly threatened. Any parent who couldn't find their child in a crowded gathering 
or had them suffering from a serious health concern knows that feeling. When I heard about Judah and Brennan and Ashley running off to the ER, I felt that. I felt that feeling. Is my son going to be okay? Many of you know my son Davis. When he was a young boy, he suffered with headaches. They seemed to get worse as he got older, eight years old. It was very hard for him to get to sleep. One night, getting close to his ninth birthday, he came in and he just, it was so bad, he, he could not rest. Bad enough where we took him to the ER, or I should say, my wife Lorraine took him to the emergency room. They did the x-rays, said there's nothing there. So Lorraine picked him up, took our little eight-year-old son, started home. They're walking through the parking lot, and one of the hospital staff came running after them. Don't go. We just saw something. At the edge of their x-ray, there was just the edge of a tumor in his brain. It was about the size of a squash ball between the two hemispheres of his brain, halfway down. Davis did not come home that night. He went straight to Children's Hospital. He didn't come home for many months. Even as I'm sitting here, I'm remembering that feeling, am I going to lose my son? Am I going to lose my son? I was desperate. Now, Davis doesn't like me to tell this story because he doesn't want to be the victim. He doesn't want to be that guy. He wants to be used by God, and he sees that as a distraction. But I received permission from him to tell the story, to illustrate what that father might have been feeling. And as you can imagine, the surgery was successful, and after many years of rehabilitation, he appears to be fully healed, and we praise God for that. I was on my knees. Lorraine was on my, her knees. She was seldom home. We had church family. We had friends. We had extended family praying. Everyone that I knew was engaged with a focus on God because we had no power to do anything in this young boy's life. I couldn't do anything. I could... And as hard as I like to try to get things done by my own will, I was powerless here. I imagine that's what this father was feeling. His son is repeatedly thrown into the fire, into the water, constant vigilance. You never know when he's going to have to rescue him from this, this demon who was, who was impacting his life. And he says, have compassion on us and help us. It was the son, but that father was in turmoil day and night. I can relate with this father. The father wants to desperately get help for the son and himself. He's almost overwhelmed with concern, with worry, fear, and anxiety for his son. This situation impacts them both. So he acts on his last chance. Faith to bring him to Jesus. He gets his son, picks him up, walks him, whatever it is, finds Jesus 
He travels. He has some faith to do that. But he finds only nine disciples. And these are ineffective. He finds crowds, and he finds scribes who are sailing Jesus and his ministry, and they're arguing. I thought I was going to get some help. But then hope comes. Jesus shows up. And so he says to him, if you can do anything, please help. What is Jesus' response? And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I used to think that Jesus' response was chastising. The Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus says, if I can, where have you been? Haven't you seen the lame walk, the blind see, me walking across the water, calming storms? Haven't you seen any of this? But as my study took me deeper this week, That's not what he's saying. It's not a question mark. If you can, it's a study pointed out. It's a exclamation point. Jesus is using repetition of the Father's statement to emphasize. Jesus sees this means faith in action. This man has faith. He took his son and brought him here. And he hears the desperate plea, and he responds by emphasizing, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. He's teaching. He's saying, yes, I can. Believe in me. Your faith is the key. The father responds with a penetrating statement. I believe, help my unbelief. Is that an oxymoron? No, it's profound. This desperate father realizes a profound truth. Faith is from God. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. The father believes, but he recognizes that he wants more. He wants whatever it takes to have healing for his son. Give me the faith I need. The man trusts that Jesus' heart is like his, like a loving father's. And isn't that the request that we all should have? I certainly should. I have some faith. Give me the faith I need, whatever it takes. I recently had a concern about a ministry that I felt was very important to our church. And I felt it was in danger of taking some significant steps backward. I wanted to do everything I could by my power to make sure this did not happen. My stomach was in knots, and I had no peace. Yes, I used Philippians 4. I was thinking and dwelling on things of God, having no anxiety about anything, 
with prayer and supplication, making my requests known to God with thanksgiving, but I kept slipping back. I am using a Christian that I know as someone to mentor me, and so I called him and explained what was going on and expecting him to pray for me and affirm my decision to act. Instead, he prayed, but lovingly pointed out that I was not trusting God. I felt I had to do God's work for him, and since I didn't realize that I didn't have the ability to make this change, I was filled with anxiety. My mentor encouraged me to trust in God's power and His care for this ministry. And He prayed for me. I wanted to do whatever it takes for me under my own power to protect this ministry, which I felt was important to the church. Instead, I needed to ask God for whatever it takes to have faith in God about this ministry. I didn't correctly realize where the dividing line lay between my responsibility and God's. I was taking on God's part, and that never goes well. I encourage each of us to seek the true source of faith and ask Him to give us whatever it takes. Are we willing to do that? Do we trust Him enough? Do we have enough faith in Him to ask for faith? If you're sitting here, you have some faith, enough faith to think it might just be worth your while to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and come here and, and, and gather in this place to worship. But what is your next step? Do you need more faith to walk down to the fellowship hour to talk to some people? Maybe faith to go into that Sunday school room and ask questions or listen to answers? What about faith to sign up for a recovery group? Whatever it is, it's the next step. Do you need faith to get out of bed tomorrow morning to face work in a job that you just have trouble with, that you don't want to have, to face people that you don't like. There's something that we need to have faith in to bring us to the next step. And that thing is God. And it's what He wants to do in us. Not usually what I want to do, but what He wants for me. Do I have faith? Do I trust Him? Or do I want to say, God, I know it's best Give me the strength to do what I think is right? Or do I want to have faith in Him that He's going to guide me and give me the strength? The answer is the same. We need to trust God enough, and that comes from Him. So be bold and fearless enough to act. Back to our story. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that 
most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Apparently, there was quite a large crowd. More were running. There was no opportunity, like he did before, to draw aside to heal in private. So he acts, rebuking the spirit, commanding it to come out and never return. As we have seen previously, demonic demonic spirits have no choice but to obey Christ. With one last attack, the spirit departs, leaving the boy so corpse-like that bystanders thought him dead. Imagine the father's heart sinking when he observes his son. But then joy as Jesus reaches out, lifts the boy up by his hand, and he recovers. That is an answer to prayer. The prayer, not just of healing, but the request for Jesus to help his unbelief. The father certainly believes now. What does Jesus do? He retires with his disciples to a house nearby. Verse 28, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what is the hot topic that the disciples want to ask him? Is it how to beat the scribes the next time they argue with us? No. Is it, what happened up on the mountain? No. It's, how come we couldn't do that? Hmm. My first thought is, I don't think that would have been my request. But then as I thought, yeah, it might have been. It might have been. It might have been self-focused. The nine who were not able to heal the boy want to know why they had previously been able to. We, just a couple chapters back in Mark 6, I'm going to read in seven, verses 7, 12, and 13. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they went out proclaiming and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They had done this before. Why couldn't we do it now? Okay. In my humanness, I can see why they want to know that. Jesus points out that this required prayer. Apparently, the disciples had not been praying. Hmm. But the message is clear. They didn't connect with the Father through prayer. So let's look at the parallel passage we find in Matthew, which is in Matthew 17, starting in verse 14, but I'll pick it up in 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out, meaning the Spirit? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Oh, wait a second. 
One is talking about prayer. One is talking about faith. Is there a contradiction? No. We have Matthew recalling Jesus telling them about faith. We have Peter, who spoke to Mark, who wrote the book, talking about prayer. He talked about both, and they're linked. They're together. We think of them as separately, but they're, they're inexorably linked. They're intertwined. Faith in God drives us to prayer, telling Him our needs, and through God's provision, He gives us faith. We don't pray if we don't believe God, if we don't have faith in Him. And it's through prayer to God that He gives us faith. Effective prayer demonstrates our faith and reminds us how much we need Him. Faith is not that God will do what we want. Faith is that God can do what He wants. Let me repeat that. Faith is not that God will do what we want, what we want Him to. Faith is that God can do what He wants, what He knows is best for us. Apparently, that was an important point because I guess Satan wanted you guys not to hear them because of the motorcycle. You get the point. Many of you are probably thinking, yes, yes, I agree. I have faith and I pray, but there are just times when I struggle. I get that. Let me give you a helpful hint. Corporate prayer, praying with and for one another is very powerful. Getting prayed for is powerful. There is a great opportunity that I would like to encourage you to consider. The prayer meeting is considered to be important by the church leaders. Having time to pray for others puts us out of ourselves and brings us to our focus on their concerns. Being prayed for reminds us that we are not alone. God has provided not only His healing power, but other believers to come alongside of us. Hearing how He, God, answers prayers over the weeks really strengthens my faith in His provision, in His love, and His action. You see, it's not just gathering together for prayer. It's gathering together for prayer to the God who cares and acts. I want to invite you to consider attending our church's Thursday night prayer meeting at the Parsonage. I believe that God will use it to bless you in your faith, in your closeness with Him, and with your church family. We started today's message with an afterglow of Jesus and his three chosen disciples experience Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain and the fathers instructing them to pay attention to him. This leads directly to a new phase of Jesus' ministry, which we'll see in the upcoming weeks, training the disciples about his death, his resurrection, 
and what they should do afterwards. In fact, immediately following this passage in our expositional teaching through Mark, we will see Jesus teaching again about his suffering, death, and resurrection. We saw Jesus rejoin the other disciples in time to witness an argument by the scribes whom he rebukes and whom he demonstrates once again his authority while he heals the son of this father. This father utters one of the most profound statements found in the New Testament, which is not attributed to Jesus or the apostles. I have some faith. Help me in my lack of faith. Since faith is from God, we cannot generate it on our own. I urge us all to approach the Lord to request faith that He wants from each of us to have for the next step in our sanctification. And thus prayer and faith are linked together. We pray for faith to the one provider, God, our Father. Join me in prayer. Jesus, even as we observe the desperation of this Father, we are reminded of our desperate situations, not the least of which is our need for you to make the changes you see that are needed in our lives. Increase our faith in you, even as we come to you with confidence in your ability to do what is best for us. In your name we pray.